This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, I Dreamed I Was Human. And the author is Carolyn Gervais, and Carolyn joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Carolyn. Hello. Great to have you with us. Fascinating title. We'll get into the reason for that title in a moment. But let me read what you've written about your book to kind of set the stage here. Uh, You say this, human existence to me is a dream we are having, and at the same time, is being projected onto the screen of life as we believe it into physical existence. This being said, it is our beliefs that prevent us from knowing that the dream is not real and is not all that we are capable of becoming. So this dream, this existence, well, this has been on your mind since you were a little girl. You've had a lot of questions about this life and I guess uh, what it what it's all meant to be. Yes. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background first, Carolyn, and then we'll find out why you wrote the book. Uh, what kind of background? My uh, metaphysical spiritual background sure. or yes. my life background? Well, why don't you uh, focus a little on both? Okay. Well, um, I came from a very musical family and a very dysfunctional family, as most of us do. And... Uh, so there were two things that were required of me uh, as a child, and that was to be musical, which I was. I, I sang for 25 years professionally. And uh, uh, to take care of my mother, who was uh, uh, an alcoholic, and uh, she suffered from suicidal depression. And so my twin sister and I, I have an identical twin sister, so uh, my twin sister and I took it upon ourselves to take care of our mother and watch out for her while my dad was at, our dad was at work. And uh, my father was a very harsh disciplinarian. So uh, we, we got hit a lot and punished a lot. Uh, so it made uh, me very um, afraid of life. And uh, when I was like, I can remember back when I was two years old, but I'm sure uh, that uh, even before I was two, I would look at life through this hazy white gauze. That's the only thing way I can describe it. And the reason why I knew I was looking at life from, from, from birth to five years old through this hazy gauze was because at five it was removed. Uh, some <laughs> other force removed this hazy gauze from my eyes. And uh, I remember as that small child looking through that white haze, looking at the world and thinking how complicated it was, how confusing and, and how uh, uh, noisy it was and I would watch all the adults around me doing things and couldn't understand what they were doing and why they were so busy at it, you know, and it, it just boggled my mind. And I thought, how am I ever going to understand this, this world, you know? And, uh, I remember even as that small child from two to five that, uh, I really didn't want to be here. It just seemed too, uh, complicated. And I had this memory in, of when, of where I was before I came to this earth. I couldn't describe it, but I, I knew what it felt like. And that was that it was a place where I felt safe and I felt peace and love. And I wanted to go back to that place. And I couldn't figure out it. I mean, the thought entered my mind. 
how did I come to be here? It's like I couldn't remember before I was here, and that really troubled me, except that feeling of that it was someplace safe and loving and, and peaceful. So like here wasn't home. Right. I Like here was not home. That other place was home. Mm-hmm. And I was determined that I was going to somehow find how to get back to that place because here was not where I wanted to stay. But uh, when I was five years old, um, I realized this this gauze was removed from me. I was standing in my grandmother's living room and looking out around me, and I was kind of like in this meditative state. Children have an easy way of going into a meditative state. And all of a sudden, that that gauzy haze was removed from my eyes and my sight became crystal clear and I could finally understand some of the relationships in my life whereas before I couldn't understand why my grandparents were my grandparents I didn't know what that meant and all of a sudden after this filter was removed I understood what that meant they were my father's parents and I started to understand things a little better in in the the life I was in, and I felt like I had been an observer up to that point, like I was observing a dream and trying to understand it before that filter was removed from my eyes. And then after it was removed, it was like I came into my body completely or almost completely, and. Uh, I was now a participant in the dream and no longer just an observer. You asked the question, what is truly real? You know, mm-hmm. because uh, our thoughts, our perceptions, mm-hmm. that's reality to us. But are we, you're, you're saying, are we living a dream of thought? Yes. Um, from everything I have been studying metaphysical spirituality and the it called anything I could get my hands on it since I was 17 years old trying to figure out why I had to be here and uh, through all my studies I learned to meditate I learned about God I learned what the different aspects of God like through Eastern philosophy through um, theosophy through all the metaphysical books I would read written by well-known authors like Edgar Cayce and and people like that and uh, through all the years that I I meditated on everything I learned and really thought about it in depth I came to my own philosophy about life and after 35 years and this is what my book is about, and that is that we, the Bible talks about God creating his only begotten son, which to me is God created a reflection of himself called a soul that we called the son of God. But this soul was a soul like we are, and in my mind, we are all one with that one soul that has fragmented into many souls, but only in thought, through perception. It's like we are still on the other side of the veil in that realm that is that I would call home, and I've, I've visited that realm many times in my meditations, and it's really hard to come back. But um, I realized that we really are over there on that other side. Um, And when we were created, we were given free will to create ourselves, to create what we wanted, how we wanted to live our life, the life that was given to us through the creative force. And we chose this world. That's one way that we have chosen to live our life. I'm sure there's many multi-dimensional ways that souls have chosen to picture a life. And so in that, with thought and imaging, we came up with this earthly existence, the, the 
the souls that are experiencing it have agreed to experiencing it, experience it together, and to each of us have bought into the illusion that this is real. When it's really, we're imagining it to be real. Where it's like we're focusing our energy into this imagined world and believing it is real so that we can learn who we are through duality. Now, you mentioned duality. Does that have anything to do with parallel lives? Well, it does, but duality meaning for every up there's a down, for for uh, every joy there's suffering, okay. for you know, love and hate. Opposites, yeah, there's opposition in all things. Mm -hmm. There's Mm -hmm. always the other extreme in dualities. That's why if we're going to live in this duality, we have to have suffering and joy. Mm -hmm. Well, we wouldn't have one without the other. Right, because we wouldn't understand joy without suffering. Right, and they really are the opposites of extremes of each other. They're really one. It's just we've separated them because we've come into duality, so we have to experience them both. Now, tell us about parallel lives. Okay. Uh, parallel lives. I don't know if you, you have heard of what scientists have discovered about wormholes and black holes. Uh, you can see it on the History Channel all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have studied this somewhat, and this started happening to me before this was even known by scientists. Scientists do believe that there are parallel lives through these wormholes and black holes, that they even have lots of uh, uh, things to back up what they're saying that's pretty positive, that there are actually parallel lives of everyone here on this earth. And, uh, but I started experiencing this many years ago. So, uh, one experience was, and I think that we have these experiences as we question life. The more we question who we are and why we're here, the more we open up to who we really are on a, on, as a spiritual being in human form. And so I have had all these many multidimensional spiritual and, and um, even conscious experiences throughout my life because I've always been searching for who I was beyond this human form. And one of the experiences I had was years ago uh, where I lived in this apartment complex. Do you want me to tell you the, the uh, experience? Please, please. Okay. I lived in this one-story apartment complex with my son. I was divorced, and um, I... You know, it was a rough time in my life, and again, I had been in metaphysics probably for 15 years by the time I had this experience, even though, because I started at 17, and um, a friend of mine came over one morning, and uh, she heard the, the coffee pot percolating through the wall, and she asked me, what what's that noise? And I said, oh, that's the neighbor in the end apartment, that's her percolator, her coffee pot. I hear it every morning. And she says, your neighbor in the end apartment? And I said, yeah. And she says, Carolyn, you live in the end apartment. I said, no, I don't. I said, I, I've seen the lady that lives in the end apartment every day, practically. <clears throat> and I described her. She had has long, dark, straight hair with gray in it, and uh, she's very plain. She dresses in very plain clothes. She wears no makeup, and she lives by herself, and she's very introverted and very quiet. She doesn't talk to her neighbors or anything. And I said, in one the other day, I, I was opening my front door the same time she was opening hers, and I said hi to her, and I could tell, you know, she felt like I was bothering her, but she did say hi back, and then she turned around and went into her door, her into her apartment. And I thought, oh, well, you know. And so I said, so I, <laughs> you can't tell me, you know, she lives, I, I live in the end apartment. She says, Carolyn, go outside, just do me a favor, go outside. <laughs> look and see what apartment you live in. And I did. 
And she was right. I lived in the end apartment. Hmm. So. And for months, I saw this lady all the time and this end apartment. Parallel life. Your mm-hmm. parallel life. Huh? Mm-hmm. And the thing, the, I, as, after it happened, I got to thinking, gosh, what was this, you know? But I, I felt, because I'd been in metaphysics for quite a few years, that it was, I, I believe in God, but I believe as God as an energy force, a spiritual force, uh, a creative force in the universe. And I felt that this was just that creative force showing me another aspect of myself that I could have been or that I was in another reality somewhere. And uh, her door opened parallel to mine, whereas in every other apartment in the complex, their door was on the same side of their apartment. Mine was, but hers was on the opposite side, like looking into a mirror. Fascinating. So. <laughs> yes, very fascinating. And, you know, you, yeah. you basically uh, are telling us about this nature of reality, as you put it, is changing and shifting all the time yes. as our consciousness evolves on an individual and planetary level of being. So it's, exactly. So it's really dealing, your book is dealing with consciousness, it's, it's dealing with uh, this dream state that uh, you call it we're really in, we're not really as conscious as we think we are. Right. We're only as conscious as we're ready to be conscious of something because of fear. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Good. Well, you're challenging all our thinking and, uh, <laughs> and having us look at life in a, probably for many, uh, a very unifying and uh, strengthening way. We're all one. We're, we are all part of that one soul that is fragmented. We are all one even though we're here, regardless of what we think we see. One of the reasons we created bodies was so that we could believe the dream was real and that we really are separate and that we all really are an island unto ourselves and have our own separate thoughts. When in reality, everything each of us does affects everything and everyone and throughout the universe in some way, no matter how minute that is. We have all been listening to Carolyn Gervais. She is the author of her book, I Dreamed I Was Human. Carolyn, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can go to uh, Barnes & Noble on the Internet or Amazon.com or iUniverse. That's who published my book. And uh, you can go to my website. There's two websites, I Dreamed I Was Human.com. That, that's the book website, and then you can go, or you could go to awakeningyou.com. Well, thank you so much, Carolyn, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. You're welcome. Thank you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V I K T O R and I movie.com. And Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Simaluka. 
and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on Toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Sarah's Ten Fingers, and the author is Isabel Stamler, and Isabel joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Isabel. Hello there, Steve. How are you? This is, as you put it, a gut-wrenching, suffering, persecution story that started in Europe, and then, of course, uh, the United States... That memory is a bit bitter because of the challenges that your family had to go through. But what this is really about is the, as, uh, as you put it so well, the unconquerable spirit, right? That is correct. The grit, the intelligence, the hard work, the unconquerable spirit of people who think that they should have more and they, they strive for it. And... In the case of my family, they achieve it. Right. So we start with your grandmother, Sarah, and we go all the way back to Russia in 1908. Give us a little bit what was happening to her then. All right. She was having a baby. This was her youngest daughter. Uh, She had many pregnancies, but six of her children survived. Uh, This was her fifth child. Uh, and she, and this child was my mother. She was having it in a very, very, um, unwelcoming society. They did not like Jews and these, and she was a Jew. Uh, all around she was hearing about pogroms. Pogroms were, uh, attacks on Jewish communities or just individual Jews. Very often fatal attacks. The only reason that these people were being attacked was because they were Jewish. And she knew that, and she had a desperate, desperate yearning to come to the United States. But it wasn't possible. Uh, poverty restricted her, and a very pious father restricted her because he would not emigrate. He didn't think Jews were pious enough in the United States. So that's what was going on in 1908. A very hostile, anti-Semitic environment. A very hostile. However... Uh, I don't ever want people to think that in the worst environment, there are not friends. My grandmother had a friend named Masha who was Christian, and she was really the epitome of the word Christian. She and my grandmother were very, very close friends because they liked each other. And there was no anti-Semitism there, and Masha, in fact, saved my grandmother in the future. So she had to go through some life-changing, more than we here in America can understand, a war-torn Russia from World War I, and then, of course, the Communist Revolution. That is correct. Uh, and she had to go through those alone. She was uh, an illiterate woman with a very strong intelligence. Her job was to bring the, the goods that they... Uh, Gentile farmers raised on their farms. Jews were not allowed to do that prior to the uh, to the communist revolution. She brought it. She brought the things to Kiev. Her little town was called Vizhisht. It was on the Dnieper River, and it is the place where today we have Chernobyl, that terrible big uh, atomic complex that failed. But in those days, it was a beautiful little um, country place. And she brought the goods there, and she was important to the community. That's how she earned her living. And um, she was she important, through, but she was also hated, right? Not within her city, not within her little town. Oh, not within. It the was town. outsiders who came with pogroms. Uh, Anti-Semitic bands came, and they attacked Jews. Mm. Uh, within her town, everybody lived well together. It was a tiny little town. 
and everybody depended on everybody else. Um, in any case, my grandmother uh, was the one who brought their goods to market, and uh, she saved money. Interestingly, she saved it by digging a hole under the Russian stove. The chickens roosted there, and that's where she saved the, the little kopecks that she put together, hoping to come to the United States, never imagining that World War I and then a huge revolution would overtake them, but they did. Uh, there was a pogrom in her town. Poles came in who were searching Jews, and they killed and they burned. Uh, she was uh, saved because of a dear friend. Her name was Masha. Well, that just shows you how important friends are, even in the midst of that kind of a uh, persecution. And there are those who have hearts. There are good people amongst all people. Right. Now let's, and, and that shows that that's so. Now, of course, there's a common belief that in order to have a child, to have a happy, successful journey to adulthood, you need a good father and a good mother. But in this case, the father wasn't there. That's correct. Uh, it was a Great Depression. He was a rather spoiled boy. He couldn't find a job. And when he saw his firstborn child, that was me. He was overwhelmed by it. And he ran off. And my mother, who was not totally acclimated to the United States, suddenly was left with a child and no visible means of support. But what she had tremendously was her love for me and a good family that backed her up. We were on welfare, but she did not think that that should squash us. Quite the contrary. She thought America made everything possible. I was never told if you go to college. It was when you go to college. It was expected of me, and I did what was expected of me. I was loved. I was made to feel very, very good and important, and I, I ran my life that way, feeling that I was important and that I could do things, and I did them. And your mom had her mom as a great role model. Exactly right. Uh, my mom's mother was illiterate, but none of her children were illiterate. In a very hostile environment, she paid to have them educated. And uh, their education wasn't very, very useful here in the United States because it was Russian, but their children were in this free society where we could get educated, and we did. My grandmother had 12 grandchildren. I call them her 10 fingers because if you read the book, you will find how she referred to her 10 fingers. Um, my grandmother had 12 grandchildren, 10 of whom were at least college graduates. Many went beyond that. Your grandmother never came to the United States? She did come. She did she come. She could not read or write. And that was in 19... 1924. 1924, when she got here, finally got here. That's right. That must have, been, was, that must have mir been a miracle of getting here. A miracle of wiliness and brightness and courage. She, she schemed to get here. Uh, she paid off um, dishonest communists. Honestly, she did. Uh, she made her children who were already here that she had sent before the World War I, they had to send back money. They, they uh, mortgaged everything that they owned just to help get the family over here. It's an interesting story how they got over here. For that alone, the book is worth reading. And your mom had to face a long hospitalization. Now, what of significance came out of that? Well, let me tell you about that. My mother was waiting for a friend. She was working at the time. She was 16, just had come to America. And a man was running to catch a bus in New York, rush hour, knocked her under the bus, and her leg was crushed. She was rushed to a hospital called St. Vincent's Hospital. It's a Catholic hospital in New York. And for the first time in her life, she saw nuns. Uh, in Russia, they had... Um, the uh, Russian Orthodox Church, it was not like the Roman Catholic Church. And these nuns were dressed in white, they were nurses. And they taught her English. 
and they took care of her and, and followed the doctor's orders. She was in the hospital for a year. She grew to love the nuns very, very much. When I was a child growing up, I was told, if you get lost, you go to a policeman or a nun. You can trust either one of them. They'll take you home. And she learned that from the nuns at St. Vincent's Hospital. They were her, her mentors and, and her caregivers. Now, what about anti-Semitism during the Great Depression here in the, in the United well, States? Well, there was anti-Semitism here. Uh, the Bund, which was a, a Nazi organization of Germans and people of German descent here in the United States, was very, very strong. Hitler was raving and ranting against the Jews in Europe. The Bund met in, in, in uh, Madison Square Garden, so it caught on with a number of people. And uh, there are several instances of very strong anti-Semitism uh, directed against my family and against one particular uncle. Very interesting stories, but too, uh, too long to tell unless you want me to tell one of them. Oh, no, well, that's in your book. That's what's yes, great about it's in the your book. book. And, and very, very worth reading. And, of course, you lived, really, uh, in a lot of poverty, right in New York City, the Lower East Side, uh, overcrowding. It start, uh, that's right. That was in, in, I didn't live in the Lower East Side. My mother did. But then later on, they moved to Staten Island. Oh, okay. And there was a huge hurricane on Staten Island. Uh, there was a, it, everybody was poor. It was the Great Depression. And there was a street that was a street of Irish immigrants. They called it Shantytown. And I had a little friend from Shantytown. Her name was Kathleen. And I used to see her every Saturday. She would come uh, to our corner and visit with me and play with me. And she was always eating an orange. She got an orange only once a week during the Great Depression. That was her great thing. Uh, and she, we were friends. We were little girls together. And then this huge hurricane came and it washed Shantytown away. And there was lots of death from Shantytown. And there was a mass funeral at one of the Catholic churches. And that's where I learned about death. Uh, we stood outside and watched as they brought the caskets out. And when, they, when what, the little white caskets with flowers came out, uh, I heard somebody say, the children. And I said to my mother, is Kathleen in one of those boxes? She said she is. And she started to explain to me about what mm. death was about. It was a terrible thing, and I'll never forget it. Well, as you look at some of the challenges here in America, especially with immigration today, uh, you know, how does that compare, or what are your thoughts about all this, well, this my, issue today? My thoughts are, are very much for the immigrant. I believe that when people are trying very hard to come to the United States, they can do nothing but help themselves and our country. They're willing to work. They're willing to roll up their sleeves. Unfortunately, we can get some bad eggs. We just saw this, this stuff in Boston. Mm -hmm. But most of them are not bad eggs. Most of them are hardworking people who are looking for the American dream. And by looking for the American dream, they make America grow and they make us a better country. We are all immigrants. We are the children of immigrants. And we must never forget it. We're the lucky ones who, are, who were born here and we don't have to worry. Let's make our place a home for them. Uh, what's more, they will, they will absolutely add to our society. Well, the theme of strong women leading their families through immensely difficult situation, that is prevailing throughout Sarah's Ten Fingers, as well as family love, sharing, and cooperation. Uh, any other closing thoughts, Isabel? Well, my book covers some other uh, terrible parts of history. Uh, when I was a teenager, many um, survivors of the concentration camps lived in our neighborhood. It was a Jewish neighborhood. And there is a section of the book that deals with the Holocaust. It's very, it's very telling and very sad. Um, the book is interesting. It shows the glories uh, of human nature and, and the baseness of human nature. And I think it would be interesting for uh, almost anyone. Strength and adversity and strong family love are attributes that touch members of, an, of the entire human race. The family that is described in my book could be your family. It just happens to be mine. 
The title of the book, Sarah's Ten Fingers, and we've been listening to the author, Isabel Stamler. Isabel, tell us how to get your book. Uh, My book is being sold on on Amazon.com and on uh, BarnesandNobles.com. Um, that's the best way to get the book. And, uh, I, I can almost guarantee that anyone reading it, anyone who is interested in the human spirit and how it can conquer adversity will like that book. Thank you so much, Isabel, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you very much for, for interviewing me. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Show me the money! Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune into Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Bit of Irish Gold, A Love Story. And the author is Phyllis Karsnia. And Phyllis joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Phyllis. Hello, Steve. Thank you for calling. Well, great to have you with us. Let me read a couple of things you've written about this fiction, this love story, but based on true story, uh, the story about your husband's grandparents, but let, we'll get into the details in a moment. You say this, in 1888, Matt Donahue fled Ireland's oppression for his dream of owning land and having the right to vote in America. At the start of his journey, he met a beautiful young woman named Annie Rice. They corresponded against the wishes of her mother. And of course, they eventually, uh, I guess, end up in northern Minnesota, is that where you're from? Yes, that's where I live. As a matter of fact, Matt worked at Rainy Lake City Gold Mine, and I live across the bay from where that has, that was located. Well, tell us a little bit about your background, uh, a little bit about your husband's background, and how this all came together for your, your book. Well, um, I've always loved to write, and I wrote quite a bit. I worked in human resources at Boise Paper Company here for many years, and when I retired, I had the goal of writing a family history. And while I I took some writing courses and became addicted to writing, so um, I concentrated on writing about my husband's family because his mother, Marie, at age 89, was still really sharp, and she remembered lots of details from the past. So I began asking her about her life and wrote some short stories. And um, then as the millennium got closer, I thought, 
my gosh, my mother-in-law lived practically the whole century. And then her 90th birthday was coming up, and we were planning to have a large, a big party for her. And so I thought I'd write a book because that would be interesting for her party and for all her descendants because she has 11 living children, 50 grandchildren, and 65 great-grandchildren. Well, that deserves a big wow. (laughs) That is amazing. (laughs) Yes, when she died, the entire church was filled with her family. Well, that's a that's a, a amazing tribute to her and her, all her family, her posterity. So, where do these characters come from? Well, uh, Matt wanted, as you said, wanted to leave Ireland because he hated the oppression there. He worked um, with horses on an Irish ca- castle at an Irish castle, the O'Briens. And so he finally got fed up one day and he left, but it was so hard leaving his younger brothers. But anyway, he started walking across Ireland. And when he reached the city of Dundannon, um, he'd been walking for a couple days and he went into a pub. And do you want me to read you a couple paragraphs? That'd be great. Okay. So Matt, uh, Matt's stomach plunged when he heard about how hard it was to go across to America. He said, I'm used to hard work. I've taken care of horses on the O'Brien estate since I was a wee lad. Do you think I can get work on a freight ship to pay for my passage? And the old sailor said, you should. And so Matt set off at a good pace when he left the pub where he'd been filled with hope as well as with food. He'd listened to stories about America and received directions on how to get to Belfast. At Belfast, he could get on a ferry crossing the Irish Sea to Glasgow. Oranges in the window of a proto shop at the end of the block caught his attention. His mouth watered. Oranges had been a special treat at Christmas until his mother died, but he remembered the sweet, juicy taste. Impulsively, he turned back to push open the door of the shop. A brown-haired girl sitting behind the counter was concentrating on threading a needle. Matt stopped inside the doorway. Hello. The girl jumped. A spool of thread fell off her lap, rolling on the floor toward Matt. Matt went scrambling for the thread. He grabbed at the spool, thumping heads with the girl as she reached for it. They both straightened up, holding their heads, and as they stood face to face, Matt was entranced by her lively blue eyes. His pulse raced as he held out the spool, but when he noticed blood on her thumb, he exclaimed, Sure, and you're hurt. The girl looked down at her thumb. Tis nothing. I must have pricked my finger. Matt realized he was staring at her when a blush spread across her cheeks. He felt his own face flush and stammered, Could I, could I buy an orange? While he dug in his pocket for change, he told her, I'm heading for Scotland to get passage on a boat to America. Her eyes widened with admiration. I dream about going to America, she said. I'm Annie Rice. So that's pretty much at the beginning of the book. Matt meets Annie and goes on to America. Well, this is a great story, obviously, about immigrants who become hardworking, patriotic citizens here in this country, and uh, a real tribute to, I guess, their ethics, their their work ethic, uh, uh, just the the stability that they brought to America. Yes, I agree with that. And of course, very timely. Proud of the work ethic that her family had. Very timely today. There's so much uh, in the news about immigration. Well, tell us more about Annie. Well, Annie was working in a produce store, and she became very depressed because her brothers were gamblers, and they just kind of took away her profits. And so she was overjoyed when she got the first letter from Matt when he reached New York. And then they kept corresponding, and Annie's mother 
um, when she heard that Annie was corresponding with him, she said, you cannot write to that man. She said, I don't want you leaving Ireland and going to America where there's all those um, Indian scalping people. And so Annie had to keep it a secret that she was writing to him. And even on her deathbed, Annie, um, Susan made her daughter Annie promise not to write anymore. So she stopped writing for a while. You had- meanwhile, Matt was busy starting a homestead. By then, he'd stopped working at the gold mine here and started his own homestead. And he started up a farm and worked really, really hard to build it up. So the years flew by, and they still had only written to each other until one day he got so lonely, he decided he had to go back to find Annie. Now, you did a lot of research on this book. Yes, I thought that um, just talking with Marie, I'd be able to, you know, kind of slide through. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I discovered that I had to do a lot of research. I thought um, I put in a lot of hours on the Internet and studied history books and maps. For example, I had to find out what New York was like when Matt lived there. And then I was wondering how and why Matt went from New York to a coal mine in Pennsylvania. So I read a history of Pennsylvania. And bingo, I discovered the same man, Mr. Charlemagne Tower, had bought two mountains and then he, that he developed into coal mines. And one was in Pennsylvania, where Matt was working, and the other in Minnesota. So that's why he came to Minnesota. But he was still looking for his land. He wanted to own that land. And so he came on, when he heard about the gold mine here, he came here to the gold mine, and then he found his land. What were some of the other useful resources for writing your book? Well, mainly, uh, I, well, I took, <laughs> I took three trips to Ireland, and um, we couldn't find much on that because during the wars between, the, between Ireland and England, the courthouses had been burned down, but Leo's mother had a relative there, and he took us all around, so we went to Dungannon, where they met. We saw the produce store that she used to run. And we saw, we went into, we visited the church where they were married. So that was so exciting. And I learned a lot about his, his grandma's side of the family. And, um, but we still didn't know too much about Matt. So I had to use a lot of imagination. Now, what do you think surprised you the most about writing this book? Well, while well, wrote the book, I was living in various centuries and countries and um, going into lots of different decades. And I remember I was listening to a, an author talk, Jane Resch Thomas. She wrote Behind the Mask, The Life of Queen Elizabeth I. And she said that she was so caught up in her story that when asked about where she lived while on a plane, she said England, and she had never been there. And so <laughs> that's how I felt. I hardly knew each day where I was living, and, and so it was really hard to come out of the story to, you know, do everything else. And so that really surprised me. I didn't realize that. But um, anyway, I, I went from Ireland to New York City in 1888 to Rainy Lake City here across from my own home, and and heard all about life on a homestead in the early 20th century. So it was, it was a lot of going back and forth in my life. <laughs> and a lot of long journeys, uh, not necessarily in mileage, but just uh, working toward the goal. Uh, Matt wanted to marry Annie, and how long did he work to build the homestead? It was 22 years before he went back for Annie. Wow, 22 years. So he didn't even know if she was married or if she would marry him, but he was just so anxious to see her. He just got on the boat and left. And meanwhile, she'd been writing to him that she wanted to leave her store, that she was tired of working there. And um, then all of a sudden, there he was. 
That must have been quite a reunion. That's for sure. So, um, yeah, Matt, um, the readers will take a real long journey with Matt, going from Ireland to Scotland to New York to Pennsylvania and then to um, here, well, first in, to, to the coal mine and then to the gold mine and then finding his homestead. And he had to cut down the trees. He found the land and filed a claim under the Homestead Act in 1892. He cut down the trees to clear the land for farming. He tilled the soil and planted it. And then he um, even started becoming an entrepreneur. He bought cattle and chickens and sold eggs. And he even sold water to the townspeople because his homestead was right on Rainy River. And he would take water into town every day and sell it to the townspeople. I think it's very inspiring when you think about how hard pioneer folks like Matt worked. And, That's right. You know, it's, it's often when you hear people today complaining uh, they don't want to do this or that. Back then, there was no choice. You had to do everything. That's right. You had no, and I don't know how he ever... Well, actually, he walked in the winter from Tower, where he was working, in the coal mine, and it's about uh, 100 miles here. They came in the winter over the lake road, over the ice. So it was quite a walk besides. Any and other... then there are some really interesting characters that he met while he was at Rainy Lake City. Any other so... closing thoughts, Phyllis? Well, again, I'd like to encourage people to listen to their ancestors and write down their stories. Many people say that they wanted to do that, but they never did, and it, it really is rewarding. I had just a wonderful time on that journey with Matt. And, of course, this is so important to the whole family, uh, your father's I mean, your husband's grandfather family and, and uh, mm-hmm. all the the extended family, but it's also a love story that people would enjoy reading. Yes, and, and in the epilogue, I, um, I, Marie's love for her family was so evident that they had this community celebration and a troubadour came here, and the school children, third graders, interviewed Marie, and then they helped compose a song which they sang at this community celebration. And the chorus of that song is to have so many love me. So the kids picked up on it right away that she just loved her family so much. We've been listening to Phyllis Karsnia. She is the author of her book, A Bit of Irish Gold, a love story. Phyllis, tell us how to get your book. Well, I've checked Amazon and Barnes & Noble, and they have it, and iUniverse Publishing. um, They are publishing the book, and you can get it online with them, and they assure me that any bookstores would have it. Well, thank you so much, Phyllis, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge. 